every day, frankly, every moment of the day, you are challenged to react to the stimuli that's in front of you. How do you react to it? What do you do? What, whether it's for a good purpose or not, you still can act positively towards it or you can act negatively towards it. Uh, those are the kinds of things. How should a Christian respond to accusations when somebody accuses you of something? Whether, how you respond to that? How should a Christian respond to anger when anger is foisted upon you by someone else? How should you respond? How should a Christian respond to sexual temptation? How should a Christian respond to anxiety? And, and our society is full of anxiety. I mean, it is chock full of anxiety. Um, you know, we have a fear. I mean, everything, every time you turn on the news, there's a new fear. Well, maybe it's the same one. Um, but it, it's still fear there. You know, what is the government doing? What is it not doing? All of those kinds of things. The other day I was driving in the car, and I, I played the same music all the time. So if you ever come in my car, you get quite bored. <laughs> but one of the songs is my favorite song, I, I prayed to God that it's at my funeral. I've already planned that, you know. Um, and the song is Unforgiven. Isn't that, the, isn't that what you want to know, even though you struggle with these things, that I'm forgiven? Because that's ultimately what the battle is with our flesh, is am I in this? Am I, am I really, truly Christ's? I love this song, and I play it again and again. Actually, I know the man who wrote the song, and I thank him for it quite often. We need to be reminded that even when we fail, we are forgiven because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're encouraged by that. He's the one who's already settled the issue. But here we are on earth, and here we are in this struggle that we're having each and every day. The problem that we face as Bible-believing Christians is that we live in a world and we're not quite there yet in that place of heaven. We're not quite there. We're saved, but we don't know if we're really sealed or not. Some who come in for counseling often wonder, Pastor, am I saved? I keep doing the same sin over and over and over and over and over again. I can't tell them whether they're saved or not. It's impossible for me because I don't have that insight. God has not given that to me. I often pray, Lord, it would be great if he had just put an E on everybody's back that is Christian. Elect, thank you. Then I don't have to worry about it. But that's not what he did. He gives us these things to struggle over, but please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, you will be floating around in the Bible. You will be going to a lot of different scriptures. If you're going to take notes, please um, know that you can just jot the scripture down and come back to it later. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, having these promises, and folks, we have been blessed by God to have many, many, many promises, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, although you are already saved, you are still a stinking, rotten sinner. You're dirty. And, and, but it says here in, in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, 7 1, it says, 
that cleanse us from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what it's about, is trying to get to that point where we are, okay, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Folks, there are some seats up here. I offer these seats to you. I'm not even going to charge you for them, okay? Right up here in the front. Um, that means you may get a little spittle. Don't worry about it. You know, it washes off. But enjoy these seats. I've got a couple here. Um, whatever. You see, God has called us to be worshipers of him. And, and folks, please get this understanding. Your worship is not just on Sunday. See, some people just think, oh, I just go to, I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sunday. No, 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 no. I mean, there's a lot of people that go to their particular places of worship. I, I was in India for three weeks, and I see these people keep going to the Hindu temple, not just one day. They go there every day. They go there every day. But that doesn't make you holy. Going to church doesn't make you necessarily holy. God has called us to worship him, and we are to worship him alone. But there's a problem. There's a three-letter word, not a four-letter word. There's a three-letter word that gets in our way. And that three-letter word is sin. Sin. That word sin causes so many problems for us. Problems between our relatives, problems between us and our children, our parents, all kinds of things, our neighbors. Problems within the church sometimes that happens because of sin. God hates sin. I do too. I'd love to eradicate it. So then I could take off the rest of my days and go play golf. But that's not what's going to happen. Where is sin located? It's in your heart. It's in your heart. Now, I, folks, I all love all of you, but you all have a dirty, stinking heart. Okay? Just understand that. That's where it comes from. Now, how do I manage that dirty, stinking heart is necessarily whether I'm truly a believer or not. Sin is located in the heart, and I have many, 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 many scriptures that we can give you, but you can just jot down Genesis 6, 5. We're not going to look at that, but you can mark that, uh, mark that down. The one I want to look at is Mark chapter 7. You know why? Because these are the words of Jesus. And if Jesus says it, it must really be true, right? Uh, no, no, the Word of God just has to say it. Not just the red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, it says this. And he was saying, that is Jesus, was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts. Notice that it starts with a thought of what you want to do. The thought is what generates that sin. So out of the heart proceeds the uh, evil man, that is, defiles the man. For from within, out of, the, uh, out of the heart of man proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, sin, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's where it comes from. It's not my mommy made me do it. It's not my education made me do it. It's not my place of employment made me do it. You know what? It's not even my wife who makes me do it. I choose to do it. 
It comes from in my heart, through my thinking, that's where it starts. So we need to take a look at that, that heart. We need to look at the heart because you know what? The heart is the control center. Now, I usually, in, by the way, you know, I didn't even give you an advertisement for the counseling class. Well, now that we have more people in here, we have a counseling class at Grace Community Church. We have it on Tuesday evenings from 6.30 to 8.30. You're all invited, 6.30 to 8.30. You have to sign up with Grace Equip. That's the engine that gets you into the class. We only have a, 100 seats in here, and we fill them up. And then we have uh, online um, that you can use. We have online because we have desks and all that kind of thing, chairs, tables, that kind of thing. So 6.30, we start on August the 8th. August the 8th, it's the Tuesday, the second Tuesday in the month there. So we want you to be there. I mean, I'd certainly, you're certainly welcome to be there. And it's about counseling and helping others. Uh, some of the folks that we've trained are helping in the counseling department. They do that. Some are helping in the prayer room, and they're doing that. So you have all of those opportunities. So sin is located in the heart. We looked at, at that already. We looked at the, that's the control center. Do you know how many times the word heart is used in the Old Testament? 730 times. Most of the time, it is not this instrument here. Okay, it's not, not, not the physical heart, but it is the concept of your inner person. 100 times in Proverbs, you'll see the word heart. 105 times in the New Testament. And again, seldom is it referring to the physical part of your anatomy. That heart produces one of two things. It's either going to be bad fruit or it's going to be good fruit. Good fruit is going to be for Jesus Christ. Bad fruit is going to be for self. It's going to be about self-seeking, self-serving. It's going to be about my plans, my ways, my goals, my comfort, my peace. Uh, I do the premarital counseling around here, the counseling class, and, and I said that if you meet up with somebody and you want to get married and that's what they're thinking about, my plans, my... Run. And run fast. Because that's a very self-focused, self-centered person. You don't want to be there. That's called pride. The other side is, I want what God wants for me. I, I want... And that's humility. That's what I want. And so where does all of this come from? What controls that, that uh, portion of our uh, thinking? Well, we're going to start there. Thoughts. Turn, to me, turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I love this psalm. I love it for a lot of purposes, but one of those things that I love it for is that we have David here talking about God's omniscience, omnipotence, his strength, his power, all of those kinds of things. And then he gets to the end of Psalm 139, and he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, wait a minute. He just said God knew his heart. He knew his omniscience. He, knew, he knows God's omnipotence. He knew when he was born. He knew all of those things. And hear what he's saying. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try and me and know my anxious thoughts. He's wanting to have God help him to eliminate any unrighteousness in him. In a sense, if you want to put it this way, he's trying to beat that to death. The unrighteousness that's there. The, the selfishness that's there. He's wanting to do away with it as much as he can. That's what he's trying to do. 
So that's what, where we first start is on our thoughts. I, I say to a lot of folks that have a perpetual sin or one that they keep doing over and over again, it's in the imagination of your mind. You think that thing is going to satisfy you. You think that thing is going to bring you pleasure. But as soon as it happens, you feel horrible. So you feel horrible. But we still go to it anyway. We still go to it anyway. There's something else that uh, we have to remember is what's the motive of our heart? Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce bone and marrow, and able to get to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You have to find out what are the intentions of my heart? What am I trying to do here? Is it for me or is it for God? And, and it's, there's nothing else in between. It's either for me or is it for God? And, and if you have something other than God, then you're in sin. And that's what we're, trying, we're, we're seeing here. So we have that. We also have desires. You know, I have a desire. I told my wife before I got saved. I had a desire to come to California because my company was transferring me out here. I said, I'm going to retire in five years. I'm going to make enough money and try and retire in five years. Well, I've been out here for 45 years, and I'm still not retired. <laughs> so, you know, you can have those desires. Now, it may have been a good desire. Actually, I don't think it was a good desire then because I wanted my comfort. Um, but that's the way it is. Now, there's a, a willing that we have. Joshua 24, 15 says, For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua says. That's what every Christian home should be saying. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we keep that in our mind. That's our will. Willing is involved in making decisions. That's how we make decisions. We make decisions for or against. Uh, you either make a decision for self or for God to behave righteously or selfishly. And that's the problem that we have because it's going to be everything you do. This morning, when you took too much time in the bathroom and your wife says, what in the world are you doing in there? You didn't like her doing that. You may have said something back at her. And again, I'm, I'm making all of these up because it would never happen in my life. <laughs> James chapter 1. Um, see what happens. It is a process, folks. It's a process that we all go through. And, and it's a, a process that we have to keep in mind. James chapter 1, verse 14. Well, let's start verse 13. That's even better. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Folks, God does not tempt you. He may test you. He may test you. But he does not tempt you to do evil. He tests, just like he did Abraham in Genesis 24, 22, 22. And he said, go take your son, your only son, and, and sacrifice him. He tested him there. He, he passed the test. But that's not a temptation. <clears throat> but here we, we see, well, no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be, te for God cannot be tempted by e evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice that, by his own lust. Nothing else, it's his. He is the one who's carrying it. He is the one who's demanding it. He is the one who is wanting it. 
That's what it is, by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it brings, gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see, the horribleness of the sin, okay, is that it's your problem. It's you who made the decision, not someone else. I can't blame it on anyone else. You can't blame it on anyone else. You see, the deed was birth in the desire, made in the imagination or the thought. I counseled with a man years and years and years and years ago. I say that because then you can't tell who I really counseled. And uh, he'd come in every single week, getting high, getting drunk, getting high, getting drunk, and he, he continued to confess his sin over and over and over and over again. He wanted to blame it on all kinds of things. But you know what? When he woke up in the morning, he was planning on how he was going to get his drugs, how he was going to get his liquor, how he was going to step out of the office and and not be caught by the boss, all of those kinds of things. He was deliberating in his mind. He wanted to satisfy this craving. And folks, he was not addicted. Remember what I just said? Drugs or alcohol, didn't matter. Whatever it was, they could get him high, so that he didn't have to deal with the reality of life. That would make him feel good. That's what it was about. You see, the desire develops into a determination with a deliberation to perform the deed to satisfy a craving. Beloved, the Lord himself says that our actions are a reflection of what goes on in the heart. So the question then comes, when we are doing these kinds of things, what do we worship? What do we worship? Are we worshiping self or are we worshiping God? <clears throat> and so that's, that's where we're, we're stuck, in that sort of conundrum there. Richard Gans, um, he is a Dr. Richard Gans. He was a uh, psychologist, by the way. Uh, he did get saved, and he really became a, a, a good thinker. He wrote this book called Psychobabble. He said this, to recognize desires and motivations that are contrary to Christian living is important. Lust, that is desire, gives birth to adultery. That's the deed. Greed, that's the desire, gives birth to theft. That's the deed. Rage, that's the desire, gives birth to murder. That's the deed. You see the thought, behavior, attitude there? That's what precedes the action. You think about it. I knew this little boy. Matter of fact, he had red hair. And he lived in Mount Vernon, New York. And he actually said to the principal, that boy ran into my fist. (laughs) Do you know, she didn't believe me. She didn't at all believe me. I mean, he ran into my fist. Um, You know, we think we can get away with it by saying something dumb like that. Worship is because, is corrupt because of sin. That's the problem. Worship, my worship, your worship. I used to be over the, council, the uh, uh, children's ministry here for a period of time, and I would say to my teachers, when you get to the parking lot, please sit there for about five minutes and ask God to forgive you of your sins. I, I didn't particularly think I had a lot of sinners there, but I want you to do that so that when you come to teach the children, you're coming with a purified heart. You're coming ready to do God's will, not your own. And so that was something that I, I see for all of us. When we get to the church, we should spend a, just a little bit of time before we come in to, to worship 
and say, Lord, prepare my heart for this. I don't know what Steve Lawson is going to preach today, but prepare your heart for that. Matter of fact, I do, but, um, you know, that's the way it should be. We should be um, preparing our hearts. Look at Matthew 12, 34. Matthew 12, 34. And Jesus is obviously rebuking the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he says, as you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which, is, which fills the heart. You see, when you have a, a rotten mouth, a, a, a questioning mouth, a, a mouth that's tearing people down, a mouth that's questioning people, a mouth that is uh, ungodly, guess what? It's because that's what's in there. You have to change that. How do you change that? Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to give the answer. You see, sin corrupts your worship. Sin corrupts and it never satisfied. It basically creates idolatry if you want to know the truth. We see that in Romans one twenty five. You start to build idols um, for yourself. And there's others. You, you can just jot down Ezekiel 14, 1 through 11. I read that this morning, but we don't have time for that whole thing as I looked at it this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 as well. But in Romans one twenty five, which is pretty much the conversation of all of that, it says this, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, that's what we do. We worship the creature rather than the creator. And, and that's what we need to turn from is worshipping the creature. They do not like to defer their enjoyments to the future. That's what happens with a lot of people. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want my pleasure to manana. I want it now. Give it to me now. I, I had a buddy that we were salespeople, and this was before I knew Christ, and, and he was back in Massachusetts, and I was out here in California. We were both doing very, very well. And we get on the phone, and this is what our conversation basically started. Give me, give me, give me. All we wanted was more sales. All we wanted was more activity. That's all we cared about. We didn't care about anything else. Without other variables, you will always choose the immediate pleasure. Christ and his demands sets this equation on its head now, that we are his. We're able to defer our satisfaction to a later time. That's what we should be able to do. As believers, we should be able to say, no, I can pass that off until another time. I need to serve this person. I need to do this rather than I get this, I get this, I get this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. As you're turning there, Matthew chapter 7, in a sense, this is idolatry, obviously. We want what we want, we want it now. Idolatry is worshiping something other than the one God and the most serious and contaminating of sins when we have that idolatry going on. And just to, to give you 1 Corinthians 10, 14 and 15, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's what I want you to understand. We've got to run from it. We've got to run from it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. I uh, preached through the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago in Anchored Fellowship, by the way. You're also welcome to come to Anchored Fellowship. Uh, that's in this room for now. <laughs> But um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, notice what they did. They said, Lord, Lord. 
they even had good theology. They realized that he's master, he's the king. And they called him Lord, Lord. Some Christians don't do that. They say, well, it's like I just named him Lord when I got saved 30 years ago, and I don't need to recognize that again. No. When they say, and not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? They have good theology. Shouldn't we let be let in heaven because of our theology? Well, remember the thief on the cross. He had no theology. He just knew that Jesus was Lord. But he who does the will of my Father. Folks, that's what it comes down to. Are we, are you, as an individual, doing the will of the Father? That's the question. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, they may have been preachers or maybe Bible study leaders or whatever. And in your name, cast out demons. That means they did other works. And in your name, perform many miracles. They did all of these things. They had confidence. I mean, truly had confidence in themselves. Folks, I have no confidence in me. I have confidence in God. But they had confidence in self that what they did was good. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, I think there's a whole raft of Christians, I'm going to do it this way, people who think that they know Christ, and I'm not throwing this on anybody's head here, okay, maybe, Um, but there's a whole raft of people that think they're his just because they come to Grace Church. Just because they, they come to a fellowship group. And you know, they even come on Sunday evening, so they must be Christians. <laughs> but that doesn't make you a Christian. What does it say here? But doing the will of my Father. So we're in the midst of a battle then, folks. And you know, hopefully take up the, the, the armor of God and, and, and do what he's asked you to do. Uh, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on that armor and get ready for it. So here's God's answer to man's problem. There is a battle. There is a war. It's going on. Romans 12.2 will helpfully give you some, some beginning of what we should be doing. Remember the first 11 chapters of Romans was all about theology and doctrine, and that's a good thing, and you need theology and doctrine to be able to live out this life. But... Romans 12, 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. We so much want to have what the Joneses have. We so much want to compete with everybody else around us. I need to have that electric car because everybody else has the electric car. Well, guess what? When the electricity goes out, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> I, I do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Folks, that renewing of your mind needs to go on constantly, daily. Constant. I mean, it's not just a Sunday deal. It is every day that that should be going on. Where you intersect with the scriptures, where you are studying the scriptures, where you are being impacted by the scriptures, where you're being confronted by the scriptures, all of those things should be going on. That the renewing of your mind, 
so that, it, frankly, I think that's the hint of clause, in order that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So you need to be interacting with God's Word. You need to be thinking about God's Word. You need to be praying about God's Word, and we're going to get to that at the end. And then let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. I told you we're going to see a lot of scriptures today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Well, let's start in verse um, 20. After Paul goes through what they shouldn't be doing, you know, the the ignorance of their heart, they're, they're, they're uh, walking in um, ignorance and they're walking in greediness and all of those things. But then he says in verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Folks, I just had a conversation with one of our other elders down in the prayer time before the elders when we meet. We're talking about a particular person that the two of us have been interacting with and trying to counsel. And, and he said to me, the, these words, he said, how can someone who's been at Grace Church this long, however long that was, and still respond in ignorance to the Word of God? How can that be? How can that be? You, you, have, no, you have all manner of, of contact with the elders, the, the pastors here, to, to find out what you don't understand. Talk to them. Ask them. That's what you should do. But this person just, they have been seen by person after person after person after person, and they're still ignorant, still ignorant. And Paul says there, he says, but in, did, you did not learn Christ in this way, and you've been well fed. If indeed you have heard him, you got to hear it, and you have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That old person is still here. It's still in my person here. I, I can still remember the sin of, of the years past. I hate it. I hate it. When I got saved, I, I had a whole raft of people I had to go back and ask for forgiveness for, for, from, for, for my, my person, just because of who I was. And, and, and you know what? You still think about that. How could I have done those things? How could I have thought that thought? And you know what? Some of those thoughts that come from the past come back into the future, come into the present. You're going to be, have that battle. And this is what it says here, that in, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seed, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The only way to renew the spirit of your mind is God's word. This is what cleanses us. This is what purifies us. This is what gives us at least a chance. Is God's word. Yeah, you have the Holy Spirit in there. And that means you have no excuse if you have the Holy Spirit in there. But the Holy Spirit has to work with something. And that thing is the word of God. That's the battle that you have. And that's what goes on. And then in verse 24 it says, And put on the new self. That's what God wants. He wants a person of righteousness. He wants a person of holiness. He demands holiness. Matter of fact, 1 Peter 1.16, You be holy for I am holy. He demands that of us. So this is God's answer. He gives you the Holy Spirit. That's His grace. He gives you His Word. That's His grace. And through that, He gives you the opportunity to live an obedient life. Not perfect, but an obedient life. 
Look with me at 2 Corinthians 3.18. One day we're in staff meeting and Pastor John comes in and he asks the question of the guys who were there. Matter of fact, there's no one left from that staff. So uh, it was a while ago. And um, he says, so what is the most impactful, significant sanctification verse in the Bible? And some came up with uh, Philippians 1, 6. Uh, you know, he's going he's to complete the work that he began in you. Well, we had all of these others. He said, no, no, this is it. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is there in you. He empowers you to be able to do this. That's who does it. Galatians 4.19, uh, Paul speaks there about the church, and he says, I labor, okay, 4.19. He says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. You see, that's the, per- the, the person who's ready to go to heaven. Christ is formed in you. Years ago, I want to see, uh, years ago, it's 34 years ago, I can tell you, because I was just first on staff. And it was a lady I knew who was dying. She was dying of cancer. I don't like the hospital. I don't like people dying in front of me. But I'm a pastor now, and I'm supposed to do this, okay? This is the way I thought about it as I'm going there. I have to go see this person. So I go in the room, and there's the orderly on the floor cleaning the stuff that she just had regurgitated. And she's witnessing to him. She's witnessing to him. I said, that's how I want to go out. That's how I want to go out. She was the best lesson I've ever had uh, my first five years of being on staff by showing me how to die and die well. Be able to witness even as I'm dying. It was wonderful. I spent a long time with her because it just was Wonderful to be there. Here's God's accomplishment, though. Turn with me to Romans 8. I'm just going to read this, but I want you to see it because you need to understand. If you are a believer, God has already accomplished everything. Start off in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful, folks? Can I hear an amen? amen. I, I Really, that, uh, that is a definite amen. But... You go down to verse, uh, where is it? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you folks like to suffer? Do you like to suffer? I don't don't think I ever get an amen on that. (laughs) Okay, I got an amen on the other, you know. But we don't get an amen. But that's what he's saying here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. You don't have any idea what you're going to see. You have absolutely no idea how you are going to be with God in heaven and the wonder, wonder of all of it. We have to get our eyes off of this planet and get it on that existence because of what he's going to do there. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. 
Absolutely wonderful. Verse 18, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Even the creation is groaning, folks. The other, about two weeks ago, I was coming home from Europe after being at our two training centers in, in Europe. And the, the creation was groaning so much that I got stuck in the airport in Newark. And, and they wouldn't let planes take off. I got a thousand people around me and we're all wandering around. I felt like I was, you know, amongst the Jews in the desert, you know, just wandering. <laughs> yeah, that's what the creation is doing. It's groaning. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of the body. That's what we need to be looking for. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But we, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Folks, that's your reward. That's your reward. It's a glorious reward. My brother had four heart attacks. He's 10 years younger than me, something like that. And uh, I said to him, what does it feel like? And he said, uh, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, okay, it hurts. I said, what do you think would happen if you did die? Do you know what's on the other side? He said, I don't know. I said, I do. Would you like to hear it? He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear it. Stubbornness. Well, he's Irish, so it's okay. (laughs) Stubbornness. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't believe it. No, you need to know what's going to be on the other side. Folks, for us who know him, for us who love him, it's going to be an absolutely wonderful, wonderful thing. I have some suggestions for you. Here are seven suggestions. Well, forget about the suggestions. Here are seven imperatives. Okay? We're trying to be nice with the suggestions. No. These are imperatives. You want to change your life. You want to see. You want to see growth. You want to grow. And, that, you know, most, people, most Christians do. They, they want to grow. They, they want to know, how do I get closer to God? How do I have a, a more fervent relationship with Him? How do I... Serve better in the body of Christ. All of those things. Here's number one. Pray daily. Oh, really? Yeah, that seems very simple. I asked a man that I was counseling with. I said, so tell me about your prayer life. Oh, I pray all the time. No, no, no. Tell me about your prayer life. I prayed breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I say, God already knows you're thankful because you're eating it. I said, you need to get beyond that. You need to get beyond that. You you need to be in your closet speaking with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not just demanding things, not just asking for things, but praying. You see, you could even use the Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Let the Lord search your heart for the things that shouldn't be there. That's what you could do. Focus on God. Focus on his grace. Focus on his mercy. Focus on his love. Focus on his holiness. That's number one. So you pray. Number two, write down 
those desires that you have lusted in the past for. Those things in your thought and in your mind that you have, have lusted for. And you know what? Take it and expose it to the marketplace. In other words, to the world. And here's some f- focusing it to the marketplace. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. I got to tell you, what a faithful minister of the Word of God. I never saw one convert. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods uh, to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you, gave to your fathers forever. Folks, we have to live under his plan, not our plan. It's for him. He continues, verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and Walk in after gods, uh, after other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my name, and say, "We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations." Has you this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. There's a message to be given. You continue in your ways. Continue in your ways. You're in trouble. Continue in your ways. You're going, to, you're going to continue to follow after Baal. I didn't even know they put seats there. Good. I am so grateful for those who have helped with that. Here's another before we move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or did you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from, the, have from God, and that you are not your own? You see, folks, when you were purchased by Jesus Christ, he placed his spirit in you, John 15, 26. And it says there that he would teach you things. How do you get taught? You have to read, you have to study, you have to... You have to understand those things through the scriptures. That's the only way you're going to do it. And so, um, verse, 20, uh, verse 19, Or did you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Folks, we're supposed to use this, this temple that he's given to us for his glory. For his glory. However, there's a problem. 
That same sin keeps rearing its ugly head. 1 John chapter 2. I believe all of sin is in this particular section here. All sin in the world is in this section. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Well, yeah, 15 and 16. I used to have fun with this. Do not love the mall nor the things in the mall. But most of the malls are going away. But it says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is from the world. Folks, all of sin is in those three categories. And they're categories, yes. But that's where sin is. It's a, a, approval. You can see that in lust of the eyes. It's comfort, lust of the flesh. And then it's power, pride uh, of life. I want to be significant. I want to be recognized. Nowadays, that's all we have. But, you know, if the culture keeps doing what it does, everybody's going to be canceled. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we have to pray daily. We have to write down those things that we lust for and see that God has an answer for that. And then number three is acknowledge what it is and confess it. Acknowledge. Acknowledge, yeah, this is my problem. i got to own it. It's not something else that somebody else is making me do. It's not my neighbor. You know, it's not my mommy who, who put me in a closet or kept me in a crib. I don't know. Um, no, it's not any of those things. Acknowledge. Confess it. Number four, ask forgiveness from God. And as I mentioned before, ask forgiveness from anyone else that you have sinned against. If you have hurt anyone, you seek them out. Uh, folks, I, I got to tell you, I, I have one man who must have had everybody in the planet on that list, but he had quite a few people. He was, he was a man of means, and he was a man who could order people around. You know the boss who just yells at everybody? Well, he was the owner of the company who could yell at everybody. And, and he treated him like trash. He's on his third marriage, and he finally calls me. He's not even in the area. He calls me, and we start communicating on the telephone. And I, I give him the uh, instruction, now you need to start go, go back and ask for forgiveness for those, to those people. Oh, my goodness. He couldn't even find the postman that he yelled at the other day. <clears throat> so we worked at it. Ask forgiveness. Next is analyzed by studying God's character. You need to know God. And I can make all kinds of suggestions, the attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Very succinct. If you want to go deeper, Stephen Charnock, the attributes of God. These are good things to know who your God is. But you need to know how far you're going to dive. I would start with the attributes of God by A.W. Pink. So you analyze by studying God's character, do an in-depth study of his character, his attributes, uh, all of those kinds of things, maybe even in the area of your sin, so that you can understand what's going on there, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. Number five, uh, six, accept the idea you learn, need to learn how to replace the idol. Replace it. Um, that's what you have to do. One thing is, it's not just breaking a habit, but you have to put something in its place. And so um, let's say it's that you gossip, okay, about people. 
That's, that seems like a very innocent sin, doesn't it? It's not so innocent. Well, now instead of gossiping about people, go and brag about other people. You know, say good things about them. Uplift them. Don't slander them. Don't gossip about them. So you have to replace those. You have to decrease, folks, in self-worship. That's what it is, decreasing in self-worship. I'm going to give you this one here. I love this particular psalm, but right at the end of Psalm 73, it says this. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. We have to grow closer to him. And so we accept the idea that we need to replace these things. And then, then again, do an in-depth study of the character and attributes of God. I, I can't say that enough. You see, God is our refuge. We've got to treat him as such, that he is our refuge. How do I know that a desire is lustful? That's a good question, Bill. Glad you came up with it. How do I know that a desire is lustful? That young lady asked me about going to San Francisco. Remember the decision-making if you weren't here? That was what, what I started off with. She wanted to make a decision whether she was supposed to go to uh, San Francisco or not. Preached on it for four weeks, and she still didn't know whether. You know how you know if it's lustful? If you're trying to get something there that you think is going to satisfy you. God's here. He can satisfy you right here. Going there because you want to be satisfied with something, whatever it is, job, whatever, no, you go there to take the job so that you can give God glory so that you can find a church in the area to go to. And I know one up in San Francisco, so if you need one, let me know. Um, that's what you do. You, you make those decisions because it's going to be pleasing to God. I've had some friends that have left this area and, and gone to other parts of the country and, and they've uh, gone there and they can't find a church. Why didn't you ask me where you were going to go there? I'll let you know if there's a church there. There isn't. You have to go where there's a church where you can continue to grow. So, let's say you woke up this morning and still were tempted. You're trying to find a refuge. Where do I go? Well, here's something. Why don't you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And, and folks, uh, again, God is our refuge. I mentioned that before. That's Psalm 46, uh, verse 1, I believe. But 1 Timothy 4... First Timothy 4, 7. And, and we're going to forget about the first part of that verse. I don't ever want to pick on women. Um, but <laughs> if you read it, you can understand what I'm saying there. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. It's about discipline, folks. It's about discipline. It's about getting up in the morning and spending your time in the Word. I remember once my daughter came back from university, Master's University, and came back to our house, and, and I didn't see her getting up and having time with the Lord in the morning. And so I went to her and I said, uh, sweetheart, you know, I love you. I know you've been at the college and, and you probably have devotions every class. Where are you with the Lord? Because I don't see anything. She opened up her purse and she said, 
here is what I have. I take it to the off, uh, to the school with me. She was a teacher, and I have my devotions at noon when the kids are gone, when the noise is gone. And I said, fine. I just was concerned for you as your dad. They're, that's something that we need every day. It's not that we already have it and we can live on it. No, no, no. That dissipates pretty quickly. So, we, we verse 7 there. For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Remember, getting ready to know Jesus, getting ready to know God, you're going to be there, is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Folks, that's what we're supposed to be doing, growing in godliness. God has called us to that. You know, I have some friends that are graduates of the Master Seminary say, I preach too hard on that. Why? Why? They want me to be more grace. I, I got plenty of grace. I got saved. You got plenty of grace. You got saved. Now that we're saved, what are we doing? How, how are we thanking him for what he's done for us? Because we were pathetically lost. And he reached down and saved us. Now I, I want to live for him the rest of my life, whatever that may be. Now, I have some specific uh, concepts uh, to understand to help in this process. Um, I have two different times here. One says almost 10, one almost 9. I'm going to go by the one that says almost (laughs) 9. I I, I have... (laughs) All right, here's one concept you need to know about. When you sin, this is something that normally, naturally happens. You feel guilt. You you don't like, I've done that same thing. God, how did that happen? I I did the thing I didn't want to do. You feel like Paul then. But that's the guilt that we have. The biblical understanding for, for guilt is that it's a legal liability or culpability to punishment. Now, folks... Some of you didn't feel guilt this morning. Told you on the, uh, the, the uh, sign on the side of the road, 30 miles an hour, and you were going 60. I know, I saw you. <laughs> you don't feel any guilt for that. Understood, understood. <laughs> Not making any excuses. Guilt, listen to this, is the state of deserving condemnation. This is from Anthony Hokema. Uh, He's a a theologian, long past. It's a state of deserving condemnation or of being liable to punishment because God's law has been violated. We're under condemnation. We're sinners. When that exactly starts, you know, when you're little and you're growing up, I I think when you start to understand where, where you are and that you are a sinner, that's when you are dealing with that. Dealing with guilt in ourselves and others, I want never, never minimize the sense of guilt. Okay, here are some things about guilt. Number one, guilt is universal. All of us have guilt. I was just in Germany, and uh, I went by the Berlin Wall. And and I'm talking to friends there because this is the uh, um, uh, EBTC, and we got guys from all over Europe. And we're talking about the war, uh, not the current war. I don't know we're in one, but the war from World War II. 
And what guilt is for anybody there, there's no guilt, folks. That's life. People murder people. People kill people. I, I said to my, my Russian friends when I was there in Russia, I said the Germans were killing Russians who were Christians, and they were Christians. And then the Americans came along who were Christians and killed both of them, you know? So you've got, you've got all kinds of things that go on. Folks, that's war. God's got that handled. Just leave it up to him. But guilt is universal. Uh, Romans uh, 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Number two, guilt is serious. <coughs> guilt is serious. We're going to be held in judgment for that sin. Now, for us as believers, Jesus Christ covers us with his righteousness, with his blood. We, we are covered with that. But there's still a sense, folks, of we're going to have some judgment there. Um, and and I'm, I, don't, I don't want to go down that trail because it's not what this is for. But guilt is universal. Guilt is serious. Guilt will remain even if it is explained away. Even if it's explained away. Even if the effects of that guilt have been lessened or, or the, the guilt... Um, and where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable. Remember this, God will not let one sin go unpunished. I think about that just for my own life, folks. How much punishment God, Jesus Christ, has had to receive because of me. It saddens me hardly, but that's what happens. There's number three. Number four, we must never minimize the feeling of guilt. If I feel guilty about something, then I am guilty. You know, it's like that, that gal who was brought up in a fundamentalist home and their parents never went to the movies, okay, would never ever go to the movies, and, and then she gets married. And her husband wants to go see Finding Nemo. And she can't go because her heart's told her that's a sin, but he makes her go because he's the leader. Well, she still feels that and has that sense of guilt. Guess what? She's guilty. She's guilty. What she has to do is inform her heart and her mind to understand, you know what? Finding Nemo is okay. It's an, uh, a G-rated movie, I think. And, and it's okay to go see that movie. Um, I would also try to inform that husband that he needs to be more gentle with his wife. So, never minimize the feeling of guilt. We must never underestimate the effects of guilt. When a, a person is guilty, uh, they can do some very drastic things, and I have, I have experienced that with some folks. This, vo this person I'm going to talk about was incarcerated in their house for three years incarcerated because they felt anxious about going outside. They wouldn't even take a step outside. And this husband comes up to me one day here at Grace Church and says, can you counsel my wife? She hasn't come out of the house in three years. As a matter of fact, not even out of our bedroom. I said, well, I do not do bedroom counseling. Uh, he understood that, but I started calling her on the phone. She had a sense of guilt that was just crushing her crushing her because of something that happened before she was a believer. And I do believe she was a believer, but she had this crushing on her of this sin. Well, let's look at uh, a couple of Psalms that uh, would give us an idea of what the transgression can do. Psalm 32 by, uh, from David, Psalm 32 
and it says there in Psalm 32, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, see, you hear that? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When you have that guilt, you need to go to the Lord and seek forgiveness, whatever that is. But you have to seek it from Him. Here's another one, Psalm 38. Psalm 38, 1 through 8, it says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. If you've ever been there, this is pretty crushing. For my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long for your my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation that is on my heart. Folks, that is... The picture of what guilt does. Guilt puts people in the in the home. I, I have gone to lockdowns where certain people have been put away, and I go there, and these people are crushed down by their guilt. They're, they're unable to function because of guilt. Folks, we have been freed of that. We need to go to the Savior and allow Him to forgive us. This is devastating. It can be devastating emotionally. It can be devastating physically. Uh, I think at one point, David says, it's like the fever heat of summer on my body. Folks, if you've ever been to Israel, okay, just think of Death Valley. Just go to Death Valley and spend a couple of days there. It's just like Israel. It's hot. It's hot. You can't get away from it. But you see, that guilt is a warning sign. It's a warning sign. It makes you look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word. That's what you have to do. That's what you should be doing, is looking at yourself in the mirror of God's Word. And so God has given this, this faculty. It's called conscience. That conscience is to be awakened, sometimes by the guilt. That tells us that, that, that there's something going on there. The word conscience actually means literally a knowing with. It's been defined as the soul reflecting on itself. Who am I? Where am I? Where do I find my satisfaction? All of those kinds of things. That is the soul reflecting on self. The inner man uses the information it, it possesses to evaluate their thinking, their actions. Why do I do what I do? Um, and, and folks, please understand, I'm not a computer person, but it's like having a, 
a diagnostic program on your computer. Like Norton, I don't even know if Norton is still in business, but back in the 1903, it was business, <laughs> and, <clears throat> and that was what they talked about. That's what the conscience does. That conscience is there um, and is involved for us to know or believe rather than what we feel. Please get that word feel out of your vocabulary. It's not about how you feel. It's about what God's word says. And I I understand there's feelings. But it's about what God's word says. So we want to have a biblical conscience. How do you have the biblical conscience? You need to seek God. You need to confess your sin. And that guilt will be taken away. Um, In a sense, you... Um, have found the solution to guilt. The only true answer to guilt is forgiveness. The only true answer to, to, to the guilt is forgiveness through repentance. God must remove the guilt of our sin through his appointed means of repentance. This is the only, only pure salvation that we have. Christ, from the beginning of his time on earth, proclaimed repentance. He said that way back in in Matthew chapter 4. And you know what? I'm in the midst of revelation right now. And you know what he still says? Repent. He doesn't stop. He's always saying, repent. Our God's loving kindness is absolutely incredible. But he wants you to get on your knees and seek him out. That's what he does. So the challenge of a, a specific example here. I'm going to give you a specific example. I know nobody here would have this. Only those people from New York. I'm from New York, so I'm going to blame it on them. It's anxiety. Well, if you had a mayor like that, no. Their former mayor, I understand he's going to get divorced and remarried and whatever, I don't know. Anxiety. You worry about having children, don't you? Uh, Some of you. Some of you are past that. Um, In the worry, uh, you worry because there's a world fraught with craziness. Then, once you have children, you worry about their education. Then, after you worry about their education, can I pay for their education? Then, after I've paid for their education, can they actually get a job after I've paid for their education? You worry about that. And you're worried, then, who are they going to marry? And then, after they get married, you wonder, are they going to live near me? (laughs) So I can enjoy those little ones. Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be flying to Virginia to go enjoy the little ones. (laughs) So, how do you respond to that kind of test of faith? Where do you go? And I want to take you to one quick little look at Matthew chapter 6. See, folks, for every single malady that you have, for every single temptation you have, for every single test that comes, God has an answer. He has a book of answers. We need to continue to go always back to that book and find those answers. We can't give in to our flesh. We can't give up. So we have anxiety. We have a problem with anxiety. Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 says this. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Okay, there it goes. Don't be worried about your life. I was in Hyderabad, India, ready to take off on a flight to uh, Mumbai so I can get home. And this is after 9-11. 
And uh, I see in the uh, waiting room, five men get down on their rugs and start to pray to uh, uh, Muhammad or whatever, Allah. And I'm going, um, do I want to get on this plane? Boston had, Boston, Boston had five men get on the plane. New York had five men get on the plane. I'm just, I, oh, five men. There's five men. Ah, do I get on the plane? Because if I miss that plane, you know, then it's, you know, who knows, it may be another five Muslims. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'll get on the plane because if it explodes when we get up there, I'm closer to heaven already. <laughs> Sorry, honey, that's the way I looked at it. <laughs> What are we going to be worried about? It's just this life. We have an eternal life. It's been promised. That's what I, I like. I've got this eternal life that I'm going to enjoy and enjoy it with you. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink or nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is, this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them yeah i've got a i I need to say this i got a peach tree in the front of my house and i wrestle with the squirrels almost every single day (laughs) those are my peaches well today i i gave up i pulled a bunch off yesterday and said do do what you want squirrels and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life. You know, not even one. I don't care how many times you go see your doctor. I don't care how much medicine you take. I don't care how much you're, you're cared for, even if the doctor walks around with you. It doesn't matter. You're still going to die. And it's still going to die when he wants you to die. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow and they do not toil nor they spin. And, and we just got to see the California... Uh, poppies, and they were just beautiful. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So you're worried about where your kids are going to go to school. You're worried about whether you're going to have kids. You're worried about whether you're going to get married. Folks, open your hands up and say, God, it's yours to do what you want. It's not your home. It's not your person. It's not whatever. It's his. It's his. Do not worry, this is verse 31, saying what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. You see, folks, when you declared that now you are a Christian, and he said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, he meant it. He meant you may even have problems with your your children or your parents or whatever. Come follow me. It's not just if you feel like it or just do it on Sunday. No, it's come follow me completely, thoroughly. You give yourself over to it. Do we? Do we? I I mean, I've been to India and I've seen the way they live 
right there in front of the Hindus, in front of the Muslims, in front of everybody. They live for Christ. They, their, their church is right in the marketplace. It's just absolutely incredible. And people keep coming and people keep getting saved and now they've got a, a, a training center there in Goa. All of that. Folks, live for Him, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How do we get to the point of getting rid of that guilt? It's through repentance, and I still have some more time here. The word repent means to turn. It means to change. It's, you know, the, the simple way I would do it with children is you go in one direction, you take an, a turn. You go in the opposite direction. That's repentance. It's a turning from sin. What do you turn from sin for? Christ. You want to embrace Him. You want to make Him your all in all. It means then that you begin to mortify sinful deeds. It means that you begin to put them to rest, like we looked at in Romans chapter 8. Begin to kill those things. Uh, John MacArthur did a message years ago about hacking Agag to death. That's the message. That's how what you do with your sin. You hack it to death. Uh, John Owen who I will bring up because he wrote a fantastic book on repentance, confession. He said this, Exercise and success in mortification are the two main cherishers of grace in the heart. Exercise and success in mortification are the two main cherishers of grace in the heart. Exercise for it. You know, you build yourself up for it. Repentance is necessary, folks. Now, I'm going to say this, but if you say to me, Bill, I'm sorry, I'm going to let you get away with it. But I'm sorry is not enough. I'm sorry is not adequate. Would you please forgive me for hitting you this morning? John, I did hit him, by the way. So I am asking for forgiveness. I went, hey, how you doing? But that's what you have to do. Would you please forgive me? Now, you know what you're looking for? Yes, I do forgive you. He just nodded his head. But uh, that's what you're looking for, is getting a, 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 yes, I forgive you. Saying I'm sorry is an apologetic. Just remember that. You're just, nah, you're giving an apology. doesn't mean anything. Now, if you say to me later, when you hit me in the head with a baseball bat, I'm sorry, I I'm going to take it, okay? <laughs> it's better than getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. Repentance is a necessary component of genuine conversion. If you are truly, genuinely converted, you need to have said, God, please forgive me for my sins. And, and, and it's just not, not a whole... You may have missed a few, but that's okay. But you need to be listing some of them. You need to be saying some of them. Here in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. We want to do it. We want to do it. And it says they are leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And, and I've had folks in my office who would repent. It wasn't really repent. It wasn't even an I'm sorry. I had this one fellow in my office when I was in the chapel here. Repented about all of this drug use and all that kind of stuff. Went out in front of the chapel and lit up a bowl of crack cocaine. And I happened to come out the door just at that time, and I'm looking at him, I'm going, 
And he just lied to me for an hour and a half of his repentance. And I'm going to believe that while he was in my office, he was already thinking about going out there and doing that. That's not repentance. Unsaved people must turn from sin. That turning from sin is the state of self-rule that you're in charge of your life. You're not in charge of your life. He's Lord and Master. I said before that repentance started early. Uh, Romans, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, 17. This is Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 4, 17, Matthew. Repentance also remains continually necessary after uh, conversion. Um, when we sin against somebody, we have to ask for forgiveness. When we sin against God, for sure, we have to ask for forgiveness. Saved people must turn from sins. That is what we need to be doing. Because if you don't, the flesh is going to become more diseased and more diseased. Gangrene is going to hang, start in. And you're going to start to get into that place of walking away from the church. And folks, I've been here long enough to see that. Somebody gets into sin and, and all of a sudden they're not in the first row anymore. They're, they're about the, a third of the way back. And, and then they're two-thirds of the way back and then they're in the last row. And before you know it, they're out the door. And they're not even sitting on the patio. They just don't want it anymore. They don't want the conviction. Saved people must turn from sin. Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me there. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Uh, I was just in uh, Rome, and I was teaching the uh, Italian Theological Academy, training center, I'm sorry, training academy. And um, I actually used from Galatians 5, 16, all the way to Galatians 6, 10, because they were asking for something specific for their counselors, that their counselors would be looking out for their own life. Because they can't be there pontificating to everybody else and not taking care of their own life. And, and they want to make sure that they're, they're seeing that there's a struggle there and trying to encourage them at the same time. And it says there in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry the desire of the flesh. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18 for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You see, there's this battle going on. I know you have a battle. It's not unusual. All of us have a battle of one kind or another. All of us have a weakness of one kind or another. And we have that battle going on. But you see, this is where we have to see that battle starts. It's in our flesh, and it's against the work of the Spirit. Repentance needs to remain even after conversion. All true human repentance has reference to a turning from the state of, or occurrence of sin and turning to God for forgiveness and renewal. That's what we have to do. Continually turn to God for forgiveness. Philip Tart said this, quote, After all, you can quite easily feel sorry about some sin and still love it. You can confess some sin and then go and commit it again. 
But repenting means stopping doing the thing you are sorry for. Just feeling sorry does not change anything. And I have a lot of that comes into my office. They feel sorry that they did it again. This fellow comes in, I don't know, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, and he's coming in my office and he's, he's confessing his sin of pornographic use. You know, he's looking at pornography. So this next time, the 12th time comes in, I turn my collar around and I say, well, I'm a priest, so you might as well treat me like one. Or you've been treating me like a priest. That's what he's doing. He's coming in and confessing his sin like you do before a Catholic priest. That's nothing. What have you done to stop that sin? Jesus in Matthew 18 says, cut off the hand, cut off the foot, pluck out the eye. I don't think Jesus is looking for pirates. I think think Jesus is looking for reality and sincerity. You can say whatever you want to say. Show me. Show me. That's what you need to do. What are you doing with your life? How are you changing? How are you showing that repentance? I'm going to do this very quickly. But I'm going to give you the elements of true repentance. Number one, comprehending. That means you are changing your mind. There's a change of mind. You understand the truth of God's Word. You begin to change your mind. You change your mind to conform to God's standard, not your standard. That's what you do. Number two is confession. That's changing of the mind as well. There's an inward confession that you have between you and, and the Lord. We have to acknowledge that sin. Uh, 1 John uh, 1, 8, no, 9, um, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That's what you have to do is confess your sins. Number three is choosing. When I say choosing, what I mean by that is you're choosing to change your life. So, um, doing this particular thing, whatever it is, opening up your computer makes you sin. Open your computer in front of your wife, in front of your children, in front of your uh, roommates, whatever. That's what you do. You don't open it up in your bedroom. That's what you do. You do start to make some of those changes. Um, you have problem with alcohol. Instead of going to the bar, you go home. Those kinds of things. There's, you, know, you know, one fellow told me once that he had to go into this pornographic place, you know, because it was on the way home. You know, he had to pass it before he went home. And I said, well, next week, could you please bring in a copy of the Thomas Guide? So those who are older will know what that is. The Thomas Guide, because we didn't have, you know, all this GPS kind of stuff. And he brought it in, and I found 15 ways he could go home that he didn't have to pass the porn stuff. So you see, we can make excuses. So there's confession, there's changing, there's choosing to change your, your life. True repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin. I have had a man come in my office, put his Bible down there, and he says, Bill, if I do it again, it's just showing me and you I am not a believer. And to this day, he has never gone back to the sin. He just chose. That's what he wanted to put down there. He resolved. And with that change of life, sometimes you need to have restitution. Um, Zacchaeus did some restitution, paid four times what he 
He gave, there's going to be reconciliation and we're going through this very quickly. The reconciliation means you need to get back with the other person. And also there's regret. There's going to be regret in your heart. Now, that could be emotional regret. I mean, I've had people cry in my office. And it's not because I make them cry. Okay? Don't, don't accuse me of that. But that happens. That happens because they feel the emotion of what their sin has caused, the problem their sin has caused. And they're regretful. Sometimes they may even show that emotion, and it's not real. I don't know. I don't have an emotional meter either. Here's another example. Now, and we're going to do this quickly. You have repented of your sins daily, but all of a sudden that old plaguing sin rears its ugly head, and it is in your head. You know it's sinful to think those thoughts, but you have been disappointed, but you have... Uh, you want to feel good about yourself, so you start to daydream about this sin, the sin you thought you had conquered. So it comes back. What do you do about it? Folks, there are gaz of scriptures to go to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaken you, such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will give you a way of escape. Where, where's the escape hatch here, folks? How do I get out of this? Yeah, my, my husband just called me a bad name. My wife just called me a bad name. My daughter just hung up on me. Well, how do I handle this? What do you do about it? I, I need to be God's kind of person in these situations. And so 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that escape. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Take heed lest ye fall. So you need to take heed to yourself. You need to know where your weaknesses are. So you need to be working on those things. And so I, I say get a mechanism in your life that will help you to think the good thoughts that you need to be thinking. Paul said that to the Philippians in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything of excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things things. I got to think on the good things. You know, God saved me and I don't deserve it. And I got to start thinking the right way, his way. And Paul continues, the things you have learned and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So I say, this is your Nike um, goodbye, okay, that you just need to do it, okay? Not that I'm a professing from Nike, but I just find that as my Nike verse, just do it. Practice these things.